Welcome to the Medicare Meetup. I'm Meg Kepke, and I'm joined today by my colleagues and co-hosts, Melissa Cohen and Breda Eshelman. This podcast is brought to you by Arrera Health Group, a mission-focused policy, strategy, and operations practice committed to making healthcare more affordable, more accessible, and high quality for all. We meet monthly to recap the Medicare news of the day and look ahead. Tune in each month for fresh content and watch for our mini-series devoted to special topics throughout the year. On today's show, we begin a series of discussions with special guests on topics related to health equity. First up, our very own Megan Thomas from the Herrera Health Medicaid Policy and Programs team speaks to us on a report she authored on health disparities for the California Health Foundation. We also speak to Spencer Pratt from Unite Us on the work that organization does to identify and decrease health disparities in communities. But before we get into the interviews, Breda, wow, what a first four months to 2022. It is all a blur. ACO reach application season is in the rear view mirror. Thank goodness. Yes, it has been busy. Which is why we were delayed in getting our April episode recorded. Sorry, listeners. Somehow May just sneak, snuck right up on us. And while our colleague Meg is on a whirlwind vacation through Greece and Italy, what's happening here in the news? There was some pretty exciting news recently about improvements to Medicare coverage. So in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, and I know the sentence is not starting off sounding very exciting, but it will end exciting. So in that act, Congress had instructed CMS to standardize waiting periods between when people submit their Medicare enrollment forms and when their coverage actually starts. Also to extend coverage of immunosuppressive drugs for people who receive kidney transplants after they're eligible for Medicare as a result of end-stage renal disease. And finally, to create additional special enrollment periods for Medicare. And in late April, CMS released the proposed rule that does all of those things. That is great news. Once this rule is finalized, Medicare coverage will consistently begin the month after someone enrolls, before the start of coverage depended on the month of the enrollment period in which the person submitted their paperwork. And some people had to wait up to several months before their coverage became active even though they were already eligible. And as far as immunosuppressive drugs, people who have kidney transplants will die if they do not take these drugs, even years after the transplant. And previously, Medicare only covered them for three years post-transplant. So by providing Medicare coverage of the drug for the rest of the patient's life, CMS would make it more likely that these patients can access this life-saving medication without interruptions whenever they switch jobs or otherwise change or lose their health insurance. Of course, that begs the question of why we wouldn't make the same calculation for other critical life-saving drugs like insulin, perhaps. (laughs) Yep. ESRD always getting the special status in Medicare. The proposed new special enrollment periods are pretty great, too. They target situations that previously created inequities in access to coverage. So as one example... One of the special enrollment periods is for people who were incarcerated at the time that they became eligible for Medicare. And I did not know this before, actually, but if you become eligible for Medicare while you're incarcerated and as a result do not enroll because you are literally not allowed to enroll in Medicare while incarcerated, once you get out, you are still not allowed to enroll until the next general enrollment opportunity. Plus, you're subject to the Part B late enrollment penalty. How unfair was that? It's totally unfair. 
Another one of the special enrollment periods that will likely have important consequences is for when people eligible for Medicare after being enrolled in Medicaid. Medicaid redeterminations are often complex and a confusing process, especially in how they interact with Medicare eligibility. So people with Medicaid coverage do not always realize when they become eligible for Medicare, and they sometimes miss their enrollment period. This has become especially true during the pandemic because part of the Medicaid continuous coverage requirement was that states did not disenroll anyone from Medicaid who they might typically disenroll as a result of newly gained Medicare eligibility. This means that a lot of people who became eligible for Medicare during the public health emergency didn't even realize it because they retained their Medicaid coverage. And without this special enrollment period, not only would they lose Medicaid coverage at the end of the public health emergency, they would also be subject to Part B late enrollment penalties and would need to wait for the general enrollment period to even be able to enroll in Medicare. Thank goodness for that fix. It will be so important to have that in place when the public health emergency ends. Absolutely. And with that, I am pumped to dive right into our discussion of health equity with our special guests, Megan Thomas and Spencer Pratt. Without further ado, let's get to it. Megan Thomas joins us from our own Herrera Health Group, where she serves as principal for Medicaid quality initiatives. She joined the firm in October 2016 and has 15 years of federal and foundation experience in health policy. Megan, welcome to the Medicare Meetup. Thanks so much, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. Late last year, you produced a report on racial disparities in health in California for the California Healthcare Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Herrera Health Group, in partnership with the California Healthcare Foundation, or CHCF, developed a report. It's entitled Health Disparities by Race and Ethnicity in California, Pattern of Inequity. This reports a 2021 update of a 2019 CHCF report of a similar title. This report presents a lot of information on key health and health indicators by race and ethnicity across a number of domains, including healthcare access, behavioral health, preventive care, and maternal and childbirth, amongst others. One thing that is different about the 2021 report as opposed to the 2019 report is that it includes new domains of care focused on homelessness and COVID-19. I think a little bit about the impetus for the report, I I think a lot of people know this, but California is one of the most racially diverse states in the nation, if not the mostly most racially diverse state. I think somewhere around 60% of the 40 million individuals in the state identify as a person of color. So if the goal in California is for all Californians to have access to high quality health care, really achieving this requires making sure that, you know, we're reducing disparities in health care and the social determinants of health that affect historically excluded or marginalized groups. In essence, like the, the prosperity of the state really depends on addressing health disparities experienced by people of color. So what would you say if you were to distill them, the major findings of this report were? Yeah, at a high level, the report shows that people of color in California face barriers in accessing health care. They often receive suboptimal treatment, and they're most likely to experience poor health outcomes in the healthcare system. And I can just provide a few really quick examples of the types of um, findings that you'll see in the report. So one example is that life expectancy at birth in California was 81 years. That's across all different groups. 
Black Californians, though, had the shortest life expectancy at 75 years, and the Asian population had the highest life expectancy at uh, 86 years. So there, there's a disparity that we can see there. Another one, just kind of looking at our, some of our chronic uh, condition indicators, the Black population in California experienced the highest death rates from breast, cervical, colorectal, lung, and prostate cancer among all racial and ethnic groups. One other finding that I'll highlight too, and just looking at the indicators in the maternal and childbirth domain, is that Black Californians experience the highest rates of prenatal and postpartum depressive symptoms, low risk first birth cesareans, which can have harmful health outcomes, preterm births, low birth weight births, infant mortality, and maternal mortality. One thing too that we see is that, you know, as the title of this report suggests, many of these findings reflect a pattern of inequity. You know, in some cases, we're looking at the same indicator over time. We see disparities on this same indicator getting worse between racial ethnic groups rather than getting better or narrowing, which is what we m- one m- might expect to see. One example is related to drug-induced deaths in California. N- not only do we see that drug-induced death rates have increased for all racial and ethnic groups in 2019 as compared to 2017, but we also see that the gaps have widened between some racial and ethnic groups between over this time. I know I've just rattled off a lot of statistics, but I think, you know, one of the key things that I want folks to take away is that this information can be used in an actionable way, right? You can take these numbers, you can take this data, you can look at it over time, you can see where we're falling short and where we still need to do better and use this information to help drive improvement And continue to track this information over time to see if the disparities are persisting or if the gaps are narrowing or closing as well. We see kind of similar findings like this throughout the report. So do you go deeper into any of the root causes of some of these pretty extreme disparities here? The purpose of this report really is just to present the information with the hope that Decision makers and others can take this information to support planning and effective decision making at, at other levels. But we're providing just largely the information here without doing a little bit of a deeper dive. I would say, though, one thing that we do is try to kind of connect the dots. What are the implications oftentimes right. of these disparities that we see? The goal is to make sure that the information provided can just support, you know, longer term planning and decision making by 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 a variety of stakeholders, really. Were there any surprises there? I don't know if I would call them surprises, but maybe just things to note. So I think one thing that will be unsurprising to those of us who have a more longstanding um, history or experience or background in this area, but we still see a lot of missing data when it comes to information that's reported by race, ethnicity, not so much in this report, but in some of kind of the research that we've done to help inform um, this report in other areas. We still see a lot of unknown racial ethnic information, you know, in, in 2020. For example, when we were doing research around the COVID-19 indicator in the report, we saw a fairly substantial percentage of COVID-19 data in California that was missing race and ethnicity information. One of the other things I, I would, again, call it a surprise, but maybe just something to note for those who are taking a look at the report, but some of the data have just not been updated over time, mm-hmm. being, you know, fully mindful of the time that it takes to clean and prepare information for, you know, uh, public release and analysis. You know, in some cases, we're presenting the same 2015 data and a 2021 report that were presented in the 2019 report. 
because of data availability, you know, in some of these areas, you know, we can we can do better. What's an example of that? One example we see is around kind of the preventable hospitalization indicator. Again, we, we had to present the same. It's, a, it's an important indicator and one that we thought was helpful to include in this report. But the data are just, you know, the same. And so we might need more focused attention on, you know, our, our data collection strategies when it comes to collecting information by demographics, including race and ethnicity. And then I think one things, thing that readers will see when looking at the report is that there are often different racial and ethnic groups presented for different indicators. So, for example, one indicator might present information for Black Californians and Latinx Californians and white Californians, while another indicator might have additional racial ethnic groups with data, data to report, for example, Asian Californians, where you don't see that on all indicators. And this is just often due to how data are collected and having large enough sample sizes to support the production of reliable estimates for all populations. And then an additional note just along with this is that we were able to present not very much information that's disaggregated by different subpopulations. So, for example, we're often presenting information for Asians broadly, but not information for maybe Chinese Sub, subpopulations or Japanese subpopulations as well. You know, one thing we, we do know is that when you are aggregating data by larger population groups, it can often mask some of those disparities, disparities that are experienced by those subpopulation groups. If you were given the opportunity to do the next phase of this report and potentially dig a little deeper into the data, what are some of the things that you would like to investigate? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's great about having this be a 2021 update of a 2019 report is that we can examine similar indicators of the same indicator over time, right? We can see where disparities on the same indicator might be worsening between racial ethnic groups over time or where they might be getting better or where the gaps are starting to kind of narrow or close. So I think, you know, continuing to produce the same types of analyses for future years just better un- enables us to understand kind of where those trends are over time and where we might need to dig in. I think there's po- probably also the opportunity to look at some different domains. One of the things that you're doing is using known quality metrics to examine differences across race and ethnicity and other demographics. Are there any other quality metrics that you think are out there that would be worth examining? Yeah. So for this report, we leverage existing state and national data sources. We did have a couple of special data requests. Um, we didn't cl- conduct much original analysis for this report at all. We, we looked at data sources. I wouldn't call them necessarily quality metrics per se, but we looked at information from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as one example. They've got a great online database called CDC Wonder, which allows us to do these kind of ad hoc queries to analyze public health information. We also leveraged data from CDC's Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, and that's survey data um, that's collected about U.S. residents regarding you know, their health, related risk behaviors, chronic conditions, and use of preventive services as well. We also, you know, tapped into a wide swath of California-specific data. California has some really excellent data sources um, of information prevent, presented or stratified by demographic categories, including race and ethnicity. Most of these data sources, you know, are presented in the report. You can find all the data sources at the bottom of each page. But the California Health Interview Survey, we leverage the Ask CHIS. It's the California Health Interview Survey online query system. 
you can just find a, a wide variety of health statistics across the state and regionally as well. So lots of great information in the report. If folks want to find more information about this report and the data that was used, where should they go? Yeah, so if you go to CHCF's website, you can download the full report. And we also make available a data file of all of the charts presented in the report. So those can just be easily downloaded. You can kind of get all those little image files. It's really great. One additional thing that we did as part of this work is we produced a, a quick one-page reference guide that documents health disparities in, in Medi-Cal, which is California's Medicaid program. But I'd say, again, there might be additional information that folks are interested in. And again, all of the data sources for every indicator is available at the bottom of each indicator page. And you can just kind of click through and get to that data source. And I would encourage um, folks to take a look at the information that's available. It's, that's a great thing. It's easy to use in a lot of cases as well. And just take a look at what's out there, especially if there are kind of additional types of investigation or research that people want to do. This report, again, is presenting information by race ethnicity, but a lot of these data sources allow for the presentation of data or the stratification of data by other demographic categories as well. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. If there's anything else you would like our listeners to take away from this report, would you mind sharing it now? Sure. And thanks again, Melissa, for having me here today. But I think, again, I, I encourage folks to, you know, continue to rep produce reports like these. They can be important for just so many different reasons, you know, chiefly understanding where we're doing well and who are prevent potentially failing to serve comprehensively and with high quality care and what more is is needed. But really, if we're, if we're concerned about the health of our of our populations, whether that be the nation, whether that be individual states, we, we really do um, need to address health disparities that are experienced by people of color and other marginalized populations. Thank you, Megan, for your insights today. I think it is abundantly clear that understanding where disparities exist right now is a huge component of working to eliminate them. We can't solve for things that we haven't identified and we can't figure out if what we're doing is working if we can't measure it. A lot of the policies around health disparities coming out of states and the federal government at this time are around measurement. Requirements around the collection of real data, how we adjust for differences in populations when building payment models or physician incentive payments. But data collection and quality measurement can be tricky, and we can't wait to act while we figure out how to measure. The next interview focuses on some tools and some strategies that providers and health plans are employing to tackle some of the disparities they see in their communities right now. Our guest is Spencer Pratt, Vice President of Sales Solutions at Unitas, where he works at the intersection of product, technology, and the market. He has many years of experience building and implementing data-driven solutions in the healthcare industry, including Carrot Health and Optum. Spencer, thank you for joining us on the Medicare Meetup for our Health Equity Deep Dive. Yes, thank you for including us uh, in this conversation, Melissa. It's great to be here. So to start us off, Unitas is a platform that does many things for patients, for physicians, for community service providers. Can you just give our listeners a brief overview? Certainly. So Unitas was born in 2013 after our founders, Dan Brillman, an Air Force Reserve pilot, and Taylor Justice, an Army veteran, reflected on their own personal experiences transitioning out of the military. 
So many of the people that they served with struggled to transition back into civilian life with basic things like finding housing, finding a job, uh, and going back to school. So Dan and Taylor decided to dedicate their careers to solving this issue uh, by streamlining and coordinating care delivered through human services organizations with better technology and infrastructure. So instead of having individuals and families navigate a siloed, archaic, and inefficient ecosystem to receive basic human services, uh, which leads to a poor experience for everybody involved, the Unitas vision is to enable the phenomenal social care delivered by organizations in our communities with technology infrastructure that can elevate uh, and accelerate the impact of that work to build healthier communities uh, and to make it easier for individuals, uh, community-based organizations, and other key stakeholders in that ecosystem. And quickly, we realized that it wasn't just veterans that were faced with those problems, but upwards of 100 million people uh, across the country from all backgrounds and all walks of life. So in addition to helping veterans with that transition back into civilian life, we're now working with health plans, health providers, government agencies, and other stakeholders to connect care across health and human services to help build healthier communities and reduce social drivers of poor outcomes. And we do that through what we call our end-to-end solution for social care, which I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into today. I hear you talking a a bit about how social care is part of the larger healthcare ecosystem. We hear a lot about social determinants of health, health disparities, health equity. Can Can you talk a bit about how you think these terms are different, how they overlap, and what is the perspective of your organization? Yeah, so I think everybody's heard of social determinants of health in the healthcare industry at this point, or or what I'm starting to hear to refer to now as social drivers of health. So SDOH, we'll call it for the remainder of the conversation. So that really encapsulates the social, economic, behavioral, and environmental factors that influence health status and outcomes. So really simply, you know, where where and how people live, uh, work, and play, and who they do those things with. And this term has gained a lot of momentum over the past 10 years. We see a lot of thought leadership studies and a lot of other content emerging that really examines the importance of social determinants of health and what we can and should do about it. And because these SDOH factors drive 60 to 80% of health outcomes, disparities in these social and economic factors manifest in disparities and inequities in health status and health outcomes. So from our perspective, that's really where disparities start, not necessarily with health disparities, which are largely the result, but with upstream social and economic disparities that lead to health disparities and inequities. And that's really in large part what we're focused on addressing and resolving here at Unite Us, getting upstream of health disparities and inequities by addressing social determinants of health that we know disproportionately impact certain segments of our country's population. So at the end of the day, disparities and equity are really guiding principles of of what we do here at Unite Us and are interwoven in all the work that we do from upstream data and analytics uh, all the way through to supporting the delivery of care within communities. Your clients are mostly on-the-ground providers, health systems, doctors delivering direct patient care. What would you say when you talk to these clients, the most typical problems they are trying to solve are when they walk in the door? Yeah, I think the problems that we see pretty consistently across all of the organizations that we partner with are are twofold. One is um, 
day one, just developing that high-level understanding of what's happening in the population that that organization is serving today. So for example, when we look across the country with our data here at Unite Us, we see that about 31% of the population represents significant levels of social and economic vulnerability. So that's about 83 million people across the country that would fit that profile. Can you tell us a bit about how you define social and economic vulnerability? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. So we look at a lot of different data points here at Unite Us, data that we manufacture ourselves, data that we collect from public and commercial sources, data that we uh, bring in from organizations that we work with. And we use a lot of that data to understand healthcare patients and members, both from a healthcare context as well as a non-healthcare context. So all, all of that informa information um, and activity occurring outside the four walls of healthcare. And we use a lot of that data to develop what we call a social need score, which is a score that ranges from zero to 100 and is applied to every individual within the population. That score enables us to understand the overall level of social and economic vulnerability that an individual is faced with. And if we look at that score and track it through to measure social and economic vulnerability at the community level or all the way down to the individual level, we see a very strong connection between that score and different health experiences and behaviors and outcomes. So for example, what, what, what we tend to find when we look at populations across the country is that individuals with a score of 60 or above on that social needs score scale represent about 60% higher total cost of care, about two times higher emergency department visits, about two times higher self-reported unhealthy days, which is the question of how many unhealthy days have you had uh, over the past 30 days, 21% higher gaps in care compliance and medication adherence, and the list goes on. So we know across the country that we have a big gap that exists today between socially vulnerable populations and the rest of the population. So one of the biggest challenges, going back to the original question that we see with organizations that we work with, is they just don't have that base level understanding of not only what percent of my population is socially and economically vulnerable and what are some of the key factors that are driving that, but then two, how is that driving disparities within outcomes and experiences and behaviors today? to really guide where we should be making investments from a social care integration perspective. So that that's really high level, one big opportunity and challenge that we see with organizations that we work with. So with that social needs score, is it is it a score that you think turns into an, a measure of success? Is it about moving that score over time? And and if so, and you started in 2013, are you are you seeing success with that? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, so we, we recently implemented the social needs scoring methodology and framework uh, as it's part of the integration of the, the Carrot Health acquisition, which occurred in August of 2021 into Unite Us. Carrot was a data and analytics company focused on the integration of clinical and non-clinical data to develop that broader view of healthcare consumers. So through our combined assets now, we, we recently have, have launched that social needs scoring framework. The intent is to use it um, for a couple of different purposes. One is to measure changes in that score over time that can tie back to direct investments and interventions that take place within a community uh, or within a, a population being managed by a healthcare organization. So as we see the score decrease, the expectation is that we start to see health experiences and behaviors and outcomes start to improve. The score can also be used to proactively identify the right populations that are going to be a good fit and realize the greatest benefit from social care uh, interventions. Uh, so that can really help allocate the right resources to the right areas and ensure that we're getting the right 
uh, resources to the right members in need. And then third, we want to connect that score uh, and the corresponding interventions that are occurring within the community directly to the impact on health behaviors and experiences and outcomes. So if we're able to track that longitudinally at an individually identified level to understand, you know, one, one individual had a score of 80 out of 100 on day one. They were connected with food and employment and housing resources within the community over the course of a year. That score then dropped to 60 out of 100. Uh, and then what was the corresponding impact on health, health outcomes and utilization? That's something that we're looking to, to build the infrastructure to help support to really evolve our understanding of social care uh, in this country. This tool that sounds like it's at an individual patient level map onto things that you hear policy analysts or government programs are, are trying to use, like the area deprivation index or you know, other proxy measures for poverty? Yeah, it's a great question. We see a lot of organizations that we work with leveraging some of those publicly available geographically aggregated data sets to inform their understanding of social needs and vulnerability within their communities that they're serving. So to your point, the University of Wisconsin Area Deprivation Index, the CDC Social Vulnerability Index, and several others that have been developed are a really helpful starting point to understand at a geographic level where there are elevated levels of vulnerability what is that? Uh, what does that variance look like across a service area? The challenge that we run into is that a lot of those data sets are built on generally census level information, which can be significantly outdated. Uh, it's slow to update. There's you know a, a limited number of data points that feed into those scores. And when we're looking at a score at a census tract level or a zip code level or a county level, we're looking at an average of a very diverse, oftentimes heterogeneous population that represent very distinct sets of needs and preferences and opportunities. So when we're only focused at that aggregate level and at a zip code 11,000 people on average, as an example, we really dilute the value that social and economic information can bring to enable us to really understand the impact of social vulnerabilities on health and then ensure that we're making the right connections to the right individuals that need those resources. So at, we do look at a lot of those data sets internally here at Unitas and map those in to understand the environment that people live in. That's very helpful context, but it's very important that we get a little bit more granular than that so we can really understand what's driving elevated social need for an individual and how do we connect that individual to services that are going to most uh, benefit their their health and well-being. That's helpful. And all change eventually comes down to the individual patient level. So it sounds like you're creating a platform and a tool and a way for organizations, health plans, or health systems to be able to identify at that individual aligned member beneficiary patient level, what is their social need score? And then how do you how do you move to impact that? I'm curious about the how do you move to impact that and how involved Unitas is in the change that individuals working within a health system or health plan context would need to take on to, to move next, to take the next step. So you're elevating the knowledge for them that you have a patient population. And in fact, it's, it's this person and this person's social needs score is, is, rel is relatively high. And then how is it that you're helping connect them, helping prepare the health system to take the next step? Yeah, great question. So we talked about one set of challenges and opportunities that health care organizations have to better understand the populations that they're managing. The next set of challenges that we often see and are working to address with our partners is around how do we actually connect the right people to the right programs and services and demonstrate the impact of that. 
So here at Unitas, we do have a strong data and analytics ecosystem and foundation that help kind of drive a lot of the work that we're doing within our solution. But really important is our ability to execute on that and act on it. So what we've done here at Unitas is we've built a coordinated network of community-based organizations across the country that provide social services directly to individuals uh, to address social determinants of health. So around those things like food and housing and employment and down the list, we have local community engagement teams that are actively developing trust and relationships with these community-based organizations, onboarding them onto our network, and and ultimately holding them accountable to perform to certain levels of, of service within the network. And then really importantly is these organizations can connect with each other and connect with healthcare providers and government agencies that are providing referrals into the community around a shared client through up through our, our social care coordination platform where they can make referrals, they can share cases, and they can close the loop on those referrals and cases with structured utilization and outcome data to ensure that all organizations that are involved in the care of that individual have visibility into uh, what the outcome and impact of that outcome was for that individual. So we wrap our data and analytics around that as well as a, a mechanism to provide funding into the community from, from governments and health plans to ensure that organizations that are providing these very important social and human services are receiving the adequate funding to to do that in a scalable, ongoing way, effectively into perpetuity. So that's how we we kind of think about closing the loop through that full end-to-end solution for social care. Uh, And that brings us back to the challenges that we're trying to uh, solve and address with organizations that we're working with today. So we talked a little bit about the data and analytics challenge. The second challenge that we see is around how do we how do we actually ensure that we're connecting our members or patients that we're screening and identifying as having a social need into services that can address them. when we're making a referral into the community how do we know that our patient or member actually showed up to that organization to receive that service and have the need that they presented with uh, ultimately resolved through that engagement how do we integrate social determinants of health and social care into a more comprehensive care workflow and care plan So we're not just thinking about the clinical opportunity for a diabetic that we're managing, but if food insecurity is something that's exacerbating their condition, how do we ensure that that's factored into that broader, more comprehensive care plan? And then I think lastly, and probably most important, um, is when the rubber meets the road, how do organizations make a business case around social determinants of health and health equity initiatives? I think, you know, we all in the industry feel an emotional connection and mission alignment to this work, but how do we demonstrate that strong financial impact and return on investment within a time period that a lot of organizations that we work with need to see to to ultimately uh, get everybody on board with making these investments to address social determinants while seeing that financial return within a a 12-month period, as an example. So all of those different pieces that we talked about are key things that our team is working on every day with our customers to help address and continue this evolution toward whole person care that we're seeing good momentum on in the industry. And I would assume that a number of the health systems, health plans that you work with are heavily invested in value-based care because, you know, you mentioned that this does have a total cost of care impact. But, you know, recently there has been a flurry of policy in the space, both at the federal and state level. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, you know, the momentum there and whether any of those policies or payment models that have come out the door have impacted the ROI of investing in social care. 
That is a great question. So I think that there's two key drivers of what we uh, ultimately see in supporting funding into social determinants of health and health equity and social care from healthcare organizations. One is really believing that there is an ROI there and making the decision to invest in social determinants of health, which we do see a lot of organizations do, the forward thinkers, the innovators, the, the, the ones that are a little bit earlier on in that curve. The other driver of that activity is policy change and funding coming out at a federal or state level, directly going into incentivizing investments into social determinants of health. So a couple of a couple of really good examples here that have come out recently. I'll start with CMS. CMS does a lot of innovative work in the Medicare landscape. So two areas, one is Medicare Advantage and, and two is the new ACO Reach program. So in Medicare Advantage with the 2023 advance notice that came out a couple of months ago, CMS introduced a couple of new concepts. One was around health equity, a health equity measure and including a health equity measure in the star rating program. One was around stratifying quality performance, both member experience and compliance and adherence by social need factor to ensure that plans are providing adequate healthcare quality to not only the less vulnerable and more affluent members, but, but also those communities and members that are disenfranchised and living in underserved areas. And then they're also thinking about considering including social determinants of health information into the HCC risk adjustment model, which would have a, a significant influence in how data is captured and how members are engaged within the Medicare setting. So we're excited about a lot of those things. We think that ultimately as they come to fruition within the program, it's going to be kind of a slow journey to get there. But those are all going to be hopefully incentivizing the right behavior and more of an investment and focus on health equity and SDO. We also saw within the ACO REACH uh, program that is going to be launching 1-1 of 23. There's a big emphasis and focus on health, health, health equity. The area deprivation index is something that is largely going to be used to help with reimbursements and payments to ensure that adequate funding is going to more socially vulnerable community. And then there's a lot of other grants and and funding coming out from HHS and CDC and NIH at the federal level that are helping to support research and development within the SDOH and health equity space. At a state level, we're seeing a lot of really good innovation and, and momentum within managed Medicaid through 1115 waivers, as an example, which are being used to allow states to use Medicaid funds to directly or indirectly uh, address social determinants of health like food and housing, interpersonal safety, and transportation access. So you look at a state like North Carolina as an example that's doing this with their Healthy Opportunities Pilot, which launched in March of, of this year. And that's really the first time that we're seeing this comprehensive program take place and be implemented to test at scale the impact of providing these evidence-based non-medical interventions to high high-need Medicaid enrollees. So really exciting stuff happening there. We're very fortunate to be the underlying technology infrastructure for that program in North Carolina to facilitate that closed loop referral uh, process, as well as the funding of those dollars into the community. And a, a number of other things happening at the state and, and, and manage Medicaid level as well that we're seeing strong momentum in. We could go on and talk about that for a long time, but those are a couple of examples that we're pretty excited about. I have a follow-up question about the momentum because I, I, I like that energy. We're used to the policy space. And when you see it start to move on multiple levels and in multiple areas of rulemaking at both state and federal levels, that's that those are good signs for, for students of public policy and, and those of us who care about public health and systems. For our clients and potentially for some of yours, I, I wonder if you're hearing any of the hesitancy of like, I don't know what the next group is going to require. And I don't know exactly how they're going to measure it. And so, yes, you have your social needs score. 
but is that going to be the thing that I need to use in this next model? Are you are you hearing any of that? Or are you worried about it? Or maybe another way of asking the question would be to say, are, are you able to get over that barrier if you are seeing it out there? We, we definitely do see it. I think from a, a broad level around the momentum going into social determinants of health and health disparities and health equities, I think there's less hesitancy and uncertainty around just the need to ensure that the infrastructure and capabilities are there to address that wave that has already hit a little bit, but is going to continue to hit over the next couple of years. I think there, there are more concerns when we start talking about the details of exactly how this is going to work. So, okay, social determinants of health might get incorporated into the HCC risk adjustment model. What does that mean? How do we need to collect the data? What types? Of, is it Z codes? Is it something else? When we talk about social care process and outcome measures being included eventually in HEDIS and star ratings, how are those going to be measured? How do we define the numerator and the de- denominator? How do we start setting up the infrastructure to support that data capture? And a lot of the other areas that we talked about, I, I think that's where we see a lot of the uncertainty today on exactly how those things are going to be defined and structured. And I think CMS and other agencies are still trying to figure that out themselves. I think the the important common denominator, though, is that there is momentum. It's very important to understand today what does social determinants of health look like within your population? What are the disparities and inequities that are most uh, significant within the members that you serve today? And start thinking about strategies to help execute on that so that you, you're ahead of this uh, inevitable curve that, that's coming in the future. But exactly how how things get implemented and designed and structured, that's TBD. So it's really about the core foundational technology and infrastructure to support in a flexible way what's likely coming in the coming years. Spencer, I I think that's a great place to end the interview. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your insights. For more information about Unite Us, you can visit their website at uniteus.com. And thank you for joining us on the Medicare Meetup. Thank you, Melissa. I really appreciated the conversation. Thanks for tuning in for our interviews with Megan and Spencer. Be sure to catch our next episode in the Health Equity Series, where we dive into data and real-world implementation featuring Muriel Bean, Senior Vice President and Chief Informatics Officer at Trinity Health, and Leon Caldwell, Senior Director of Health Equity Strategies and Innovation at the American Hospital Association. That's all for now. See you in June. Thank you for joining us for the Medicare Meetup today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to tell us, share the podcast, follow us on Twitter at Arrera Health. That's A-U-R-R-E-R-A Health. If you have questions or thoughts about future guests or to subscribe to our Medicare News Roundup, you can always reach us at Medicare at ArreraHealth.com. Finally, before we go, have you hugged your Medicare loved one today? No? Do it. Hugs are back. Medicare is destination health coverage. We all end up here if we're lucky. But isolation isn't the destination we want for ourselves or for one another. So reach out, text, or send mail. People love mail. And until next time, this has been Breda, Melissa, and Meg with your Medicare Meetup.